Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week I will interview a leader who epitomizes the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of that skill. In these interviews I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdoms each guest shares, and if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. Boy, do we have an amazing guest for you today as our guest on the Courage to Lead interview series. His name is Paul Watson, an author of a book called Lost and Found, Why We Need Adventure. Paul describes himself as the original nerd. His story is truly beyond interesting. Paul owned several large pharmacies in rural Victoria and they were very successful. He had the fast cars, the wealth and the house, but he did not have a sustainable lifestyle. Paul survived on minimal sleep, striving for more success in wealth and a thriving business model. He lived off fast food and had an account at the local Kentucky Fried Outlet, and he was conservatively at least 20 kilograms overweight and very unhealthy. Paul made the decision to change this, which ended with him selling his businesses and eventually being a competitor in a little-known event called the 6633 Arctic Ultra, a 583-kilometer unsupported solo race deep in the Arctic Circle. This is his story. We explain how Paul became this person and he attributes his journey to creating the discipline in himself to make high quality decisions. His main message is he wants people to have a better story for themselves. I really enjoyed this interview and there were lots of laughs throughout the whole thing and I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. The reason I've got Paul on the show today is um, Paul is the author of uh, a book called Lost and Found, Why We Need Adventure. So um, I will let actually, I'll go rather than me introduce Paul, I will get Paul to talk about a little bit about who he is. I don't have a good elevator pitch because it's a bit of a long story and I wear a lot of hats. (laughs) I think to give people a baseline, um, I'm a nerdy dad from a country town, but uh, I was classically trained as a pharmacist. Uh, I grew up in Melbourne uh, and I went to school in Melbourne, grew up in Melbourne, worked in Melbourne for a few years and then headed out to regional Victoria uh, following work. And my original plan was I'm going to I'm going to head out to regional Vic, do a couple of years, build some businesses and then come back to Melbourne. Uh, And that was 23 years ago. And I'm still out here in regional Victoria, Um, you know, wife, kids, land, dogs, chickens, cows, the whole lot. And I don't ever see myself returning to the big smoke. Um, and that's the simple journey, but in amongst all that, I've, I've evolved to wear a lot of hats and, and spent time doing things that as a young man or even a student, I never, ever dreamed I would do and things that I still at times feel uniquely unqualified to do. So I, I really think of myself as a jack of all trades and, and we'll probably dip into, <laughs> dip into that as we go. All right. So that's a really modest uh, account of, of who, you, who you're at. Um, so the, one of the reasons I really wanted you on the show, and, and Paul has been quite, he's left a lot of room for us to, to really get into it. So Paul um, 
has done, and I can't remember the exact name, it's called the uh, 6633 Arctic Ultra, a 583-kilometre unsupported solo race deep in the Arctic Circle. So he's done that at least two times, um, and, and the book talks about both those times. Um, and your intro just touched on it. You were a, a nerdy a nerdy dad, you know, ticked all the nerdy boxes at school, mm -hmm. um, became a pharmacist, and then started to build some serious business acumen around that in, in regional Victoria. And then, um, and and I think I like it in your book, you talk about it, you're pretty well living on McDonald's three meals a day, that, you know, that kind of stuff with no exercise, no sleep, no, 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 no self-care. And, and you're on the story to probably the modern Western, Western um, diet of um, mm -hmm. looking at some serious illnesses pretty early in life and dying. <laughs> pretty much. And it's, yeah. it's, it's a really common story, but you, you do that thing of like, I was fortunate enough to go to a private boys' school and I went there not because my parents are wealthy, like I got an academic scholarship to go there because I'm a nerd. And so you go there and you do all the things you think you should do. So you study hard, you go to uni, you get a degree, you get a job and you should work hard at your job. And I, I did all those things. I, I got into pharmacy. I originally wanted to get into medicine and I, I missed the mark by a few points and ended up in pharmacy. Okay, that's it. Got into pharmacy and, and it turns out that as a pharmacist, I made a much better business person than I did as a pharmacist. So I got into the really into the business side of it. And I often say this to people, looking from the outside in to what I was doing, people would see that story of, wow, there's a guy that's really successful. I had three big businesses. We were operating seven days a week, 12 and a half hours a day, 364 days a year. Um, you know, I drove a nice car, had about 60 employees. It all looks great on paper. But then I'd say to people, but if you were me on the inside looking out, I was actually abjectly miserable. Like I had no social life. My, my friends were the people I saw at work. My family were like 300 kilometres away. I didn't see them. I had a relationship that just fell apart because I just didn't exist. I was just buried in work all the time. And you, you know, you really reach a point, and I really reached that point where you go, what am I doing? Like if you die with the most money, you don't win. You don't get a medal like that's that's it. I'm you reach a point. Go, is this it? Do I just do I just keep working twelve hours a day, seven days a week until I retire, and then try and do all the things that I wanted to do, you know, thirty years ago when I had the energy and the the time and the capacity to do it, or do I just keep working until I die? And that was really a revelation for me. Going this definition of success is no longer healthy for me. And it was. Like my mum used to joke, I think you're the only person in Warrnambool that has a, an account of the drive-through at KFC. Like, I was overweight, I was unhealthy, and, like, just this this doesn't end well. I need to have a different story. You want um, to give um, – because what you're describing, Paul, is uh, essentially, you know, when you look around cities and, and rural towns, your story mm. is pretty – well known, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to give a a descriptor of if you like? I've never, I've actually never heard of that. Uh, having an account at the local KFC, so that's <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty enlightening. But do you want to give us an, uh, a description of of how much weight you were, how you actually felt, what was going on for you, uh, um, and and what were the alarm bells to you that something was wrong? I don't know what I weighed. I just knew that I was really unhealthy. Like it just. My diet was terrible. Like my parents would come and visit me. They're in Melbourne, so it was like a three-hour drive. And mum would bring like 
everything, like butter and milk. She's like, because I know I'm going to turn up in your house and the fridge will be empty. Like there'll be no food in it yeah. because you're not home and the dishes will just be put down wherever you stopped and fell asleep and got up and went back to work. <laughs> it's just terrible. Yeah. Um, but from a from a work point of view, like success begets more success and you keep chasing the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And and I reached a point where the workload was was really unmanageable. Like I I picked up a really large business contract, um, and it got to the point where I was was getting to work and working till like I'd work till midnight and I'd go home, grab a couple of hours sleep, and I'd be back at work at four or five the next morning, and I'd just keep doing that just to stay afloat, um, just to because there was so much work to do, yeah. and that's fine for a week or two or a month when there's a big project, but when it becomes the norm, like I suddenly realised that. A 12-hour day, for me going flat stick for 12 hours, was a short day. And I remember lying in bed one night, it was like 2 a.m. in the morning, and it just my heart was going a million miles an hour, and you just, what are you doing? Like, you can't you can't sustain this. Like, this, this doesn't have a good ending. Yeah. So either you accept that you're going to have a bad ending or you do something about it. Um, and the doing something about it wasn't, to begin with, wasn't dramatic. Like, what I did was actually take a holiday and go, I need to go somewhere and decompress. Yeah. And the decompression wasn't, I'm going to go sit on my phone or my laptop or whatever. I need to absolutely unplug. So I went to Nepal. And I only went to Nepal because I literally got the map out and went, what doesn't have Wi-Fi? Catman okay. Do. At that stage, I'm like, early 2000s, I don't think this has Wi-Fi. I'm going to go there because you can't ring me, you can't email me, you can't fax me. I have to unplug and I'll be yeah. in an area with no phone reception. So I went there and did a very, very basic trek, like really basic, and and loved it. And just went, oh, there's there's all this stuff out there beyond the four walls of what I've shackled myself to. I should probably go out and see a bit more of that because I feel much better as a human about myself. Mm. And so I came back and went, oh, what do I do next? And then I went and did the Kokoda track not long after that. Um, my grandfather fought in Rabaul in New Britain in World War II, so just off the coast of New Guinea. Yeah. Um, and he was alive at the time. And I wanted to go. I chatted to him and, and wanted to go back and retrace his footsteps. And he asked me to lay a poppy on his best mate's grave. And I, I went okay. there and did that and, and found that hugely emotional. Yeah. Um, but when it did the Kokoda track, um, and I often tell people to make the joke of going, I turned up at the Kokoda track in my special Katmandu boots and my, you know, my Nike sweat wicking top and all that kind of stuff. And and I got a porter and the porter turned up in thongs and jeans and yeah. just picked up my backpack like it weighed nothing, picked me up like it weighed nothing and just took off. I yeah. don't think it broke a sweat. I was sweating before we started, but, but I love the experience. Um, I actually went back and did the Kokoda track a second time 10 years later. Um, and had a very different experience, much fitter, much healthier, yeah. carried my own pack, took a bunch of mates with me and, and did it and had a different experience. But it just started to iterate and went, did that basic trek in Nepal, loved it. Did the Kokoda track and survived, loved it. What do I do next? And and came back to work and started to see it from a different perspective of, of perhaps more a fully-fledged human being versus the guy that has a business card and makes this money and has that title and drives that car, yeah. going, hang on, there's – there's a lot more to this, this experience. Um, and reached a point where I made the decision, like, you know what? I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And I actually sold all my businesses and got out completely and took an entirely massive left turn. Uh, and I actually went, left my businesses, spent a few months uh, traveling and then came back and learned a trade of all things. I actually got on the tools. Um, a good mate of mine, who's now my brother-in-law, uh, is a chippy. Uh, I literally just said, okay, what do I need to buy? Teach me. 
uh, and I bought a house and we stripped it back to studs and he would come on the weekends and tell me what to do and mm. then I would spend the week actually attempting to do that and then on the weekends he would come back and he'd go, look, I can see what you're trying to do, <laughs> but let's just try that again yeah. and go from there. And and it really was that iterative process of going, I, I can't do this anymore, so I have to take action and do something about it. So I did a few small steps and that opened up the doorway to understanding a few larger steps. And then that gave me the courage to go, okay, we're actually going to open this door and walk right through it and and try an entirely different experience. And, yeah. and Can we just go there a little bit? Like um, uh, most people I've interviewed on this series and even my own personal experiences, when you change direction sometimes, mm. um, it doesn't always work out straight away. <laughs> <laughs> um, did Can you let it like it, sound, it sounds and I don't mean to be trite about this, but it sounds mm. quite romantic that you could make the switch and it worked. Yep. Mm. But were there moments in that switch where you thought, what the hell have I done? And did it, it didn't work? Or what? can you tell it? How, how did you keep going when you just changed direction so dramatically? I think, no, and I was fortunate to some degree, and I'll, I'll explain fortunate in, in, you know, quotation marks in a moment, but uh, I think I was fortunate in that I went out and, and these things worked. And I think part of it is because I didn't go out with a that diehard must succeed plan. I went out to go, I want to have these experiences. So I'm going to go have those experiences. Like I want to learn a trade because I think yeah. that's a, a great skill. And I want to go find out what what's, I've done Kokoda and I did a basic trek in Nepal. What's the next thing that I would do after that? Yeah. And I would go without expectation of what that experience would be other than that I will go and have that experience. Yeah. And I went and did a, a bigger peak in Nepal and came back and went, oh, that was, that was really hard, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. What would I do next? And then went and went, okay, if I want to do something really big, I should upskill so i went to new zealand and did a course in new zealand on you know ice climbing and crevasse rescue and, and those kind of things and and up upgraded my mountaineering skills and they went okay well now i'm kind of a bit more comfortable about going out and doing some more bigger expeditions yeah. um and and people the, the pushback I often get is well you know you can afford to do that that's great and part of my answer to that is i could afford to do it but i had spent the preceding decade working like a, an insane person, like 80 to 100 hours a week, every week, nonstop. Like there were literally years where I worked 365 days a year, nonstop. Mm. Um, so I don't recommend that for anyone, but I, I had put in the work and I took that decade of work and I, you know, I banked some runs from that and I yeah. used that to open some doorways, but then had the courage to walk through those doorways and go do a few things. Now, some of those things are financial, like you don't just go out and buy a second house and, you know, renovate it off a whim mm. but then some of these other things of going well i want to get healthy again like that doesn't cost you money um, yeah. i want to go out and have some of these experiences and learn well learning doesn't always cost you money so yeah. some of it was about i've got resources and some of it was about no i just have the, the the impetus to go out and learn and have these experiences and that kind of opened up some doorways for me Being prepared followed, to learn. yeah yeah and then i just followed the path of going okay i i did that high peak in nepal and then i did that training in new zealand what doorways does that open? Well, that opens these ones. Well, I might go and do that. So then I went to uh, I went to Africa and climbed Kilimanjaro. And then I'm like, well, I did that. Where can I go from there? And I went to South America and climbed the highest peak on the South American continent. And then an opportunity opened up to go to Antarctica and climb the highest peak there. So I just started to follow the opportunities and the experiences and going, I would love to go to that place and do that thing. Yeah, uh, I will follow that and see where it takes me. And it might work and it might not. And I think part of that not having a really hard and fast expectation of what success would be other than going and have the experience 
allowed me to be, be a bit more relaxed and open-minded about just going and being present and actually allowing the experience to unfold and, and be part of it. It's a really um, refreshing, like you hear of you hear of all these books that you read and mm. and, and it's, you know, whatever book you, you pick up nowadays, it's you must succeed, you must get better. But I don't think anyone, I've ever heard anyone say, just have the experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a great example of doors that open. Like, I got an offer to do an uh, an Everest expedition, and I I signed up for it. So now I know I've not climbed Everest, by the way. I should put that out at the start. But I signed up for it at the time. I went. I better get really fit, but I wouldn't mind getting a sponsor. So I went to the local gym Mm. and said, "Hey, do you want to sponsor me? I'd love to do this." And they're like, "Yeah, that's fine. We'll we'll give you a PT. They'll PT you for free. That's fine." So I'm training with this PT and, and the lady said to me, she said, you know what, I, I don't think you should be training as in a traditional gym sense. You know, I think you should use this different methodology. And it was it happened to be CrossFit at the time. Um, she said, have you ever tried that? I'm like, oh, no, I haven't. I'll, I'll go and explore it. So I explored it, really liked it, yeah. found there was a local CrossFit gym. So I went to that gym and I signed up and I joined it. I was training there and I, I was chatting with the guy who owned it. And I went, you're a really great guy. You're a super marketer, but I think there's opportunities to run this business better. Mm. Do, do, do you want a partner? So I ended up buying half the gym. Yeah, yeah. Then we start, we got further down the track, and then I went, you know what? I reckon I'm going to take this on my own. So I bought him out. And then all yeah. of a sudden, like, hang on, I'm a nerdy pharmacist, and I just bought a gym. <laughs> and now yeah, I'm at the yeah. gym. But then I went, you know what? I'm also a tight ass, and I've got to buy new equipment for the gym, but I don't want to pay full retail because I'm stingy. I wonder if I could import the equipment myself. So I looked down that track and found out that I could. So I started importing gym equipment myself. And then had a couple of mates in other gyms go, could you get me some? Because that's <laughs> really good. Yeah, sure. And then next thing I went, well, I might as well get a container load. Yeah. And then I went to I went to Shanghai and I, I went to the factories and, and sourced it all. And then I got a couple of container loads and thought, well, I've got a lot of gear now. I might as well set up a website. Yeah. So then I set up a website. And none of this was planned. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, I've now got a business importing and selling gym equipment. I own a gym all because I wanted to get some free training at another gym so I could go to a mountaineering expedition that I never ended up going on anyway. So yeah, yeah. it's one of those things of going, I felt because I allowed myself to just explore and see where the opportunities led, it just led me down roads I never thought I'd go down, I never thought would exist for me just by being open to explore the opportunities. And, and that's how they went. And look, harking back to your earlier point, like, the whole gym experience, like it sounds great, oh, you had a business importing and you had a gym and that kind of stuff. At the end of the day, I don't think I made a dollar out of doing all of that. Like the the, the gym and the importing business, I think I ended up getting out of it what I put into it. It was like a zero-sum game. Yeah. But I had this fantastic experience of doing those things and and just spending some time in that environment. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a handy skill to go, if you drop me in a room somewhere and there's a doctor I can talk to them if there's a gym instructor I can talk to them if you've got a guy who imports stuff out of China I can talk to them yes. if you've got a yeah. logistics warehouse guy who drives a forklift I've done that for ages and I had that feels and just in some ways I felt it made me a better human because I could just relate to people on on all these different aspects and have a great conversation with them and That's all great. that came back to just going through doors and and having those experiences being prepared to have it. if um uh, you've read, you see a, a lot. I don't know. I don't think it's in your book, but you often see the quote, "The man in the man in the arena." Yes. Um, you know, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so you're you're what you're just given a brilliant example of. You didn't sit on the sidelines. Um, no. You've you've um, no. you, you've played in every possible kind of uh, segue that you could 
and because mm. of that, you're, it makes your life a lot richer. Um, but I didn't have a grand yeah. plan. Like, it's not like yeah. I had this mapped out as this is my five-year plan. Like, there was no five-year plan. And there's nothing wrong with a five-year plan. But for me, that just uh, – that season of my life, that didn't work. I just wanted to explore and see what opportunities came up and, and kind of take it from there. Okay. Well, so uh, we've, we've – before we started this interview, I said that I was going to ask you two questions. Um, um, it might be a, a good opportunity right at that time, right at this time, to to segue into that. Um, what the first question is: What was your first ever true experience of leadership, and why? And so, ha have we up into, <laughs> up up until this stage of your story, have we hmm. had it yet, or has that happened later? I don't know whether there's a defining moment of leadership for me, but I, and I really think as I look at the different phases and careers I've had, there have been different moments of leadership that have required a different skill set along the way. Mm. And perhaps just thinking aloud now, those different experiences have allowed me to layer skills that have served me in later leadership needs. So, for example, going back to my early pharmacy days, getting out from you know being the white coat pharmacist behind the counter to actually managing a business and then owning a business that required leadership mm. uh, because you had staff and you had issues and you had hr and you had supplies and you had all those kind of things so that for me took a specific skill set of just actual raw business leadership and i went and did mm. an mba and did all the things i thought you should do to try and flesh out those skills yeah they there was no greater school than just being in the trenches and learning as you went. And I got things right and I got things wrong and, and went from there. Moving into mountaineering and, and expedition work and ultra racing, that's very much about self-leadership. I think about having really a very good understanding of how you operate and how to move the levers and the dials so that you can get outcomes that you want. Um, and then the next phase of leadership for me was really about being a, a father, about being a parent. So um, my wife and I, we've got two young boys. And for the last three or four years, I've been a stay-at-home dad uh, by choice, not because of the pandemic or anything of the sort. Yeah. I made that choice. My wife's a school principal, and, and she wanted to go out and chase that career. It's really a passion for her. I've had a lot of career stuff, and I was happy to stay at home along those lines of we've got two boys. And I think having a father at home as the stay-at-home parent would be beneficial and that's required a whole different skill yeah, set of leadership yeah, for you, me. Yeah. And that's at the moment that's been the most challenging leadership journey um, that I've had um, because a, it takes a different skill set. You're trying to balance. I'm trying to raise kids. I'm trying to raise boys as a father. I'm trying to, you know, manage myself and them. Like I love the quote that as you're watching your kids grow up, we often forget that they're watching you grow up. Yeah. Like you don't, you know, your kids are born and all of a sudden you aren't a fully qualified MBA parent. It's like, yeah. no, you've just got a kid. Now you have to figure it out. Yeah. So respecting that journey of going, well, I'm still learning as a leader of, of kids um, and they're learning as well. And I need to kind of, you know, thread the needle on that path as I go. So leadership for me has been really uh, uh, an experience at different levels requiring different skills. And I haven't nailed it at any of those stages yet but they've given me tools to be a little better each time as those okay. requirements have come along. Let's, um, I, I love where these, and this is where I love just letting the guest, like yourself, just just <laughs> Let talk. me ramble. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's, um, and because one of my 
um, passions is that, you know, equal equal partners in the home uh, and that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm not what you just said. I, I don't get it right. I get it wrong a lot. Um, but I'm, curi- I'm curious, um, do you want to take us down that path? Your wife is the principal, so she's earning the earning the... The, mm-hmm. the the money for the for the family and mm-hmm. you're the stay-at-home dad um what do you do each day to support your family um and to make yeah, sure your wife wife comes home to a good home yeah that's right it's a mixed bag like i still work from home like we have we have uh, an airbnb we have some uh, residential property that i manage we're an acreage that needs work um i still work as a keynote speaker and a writer and those kind of things so i still have work responsibilities that aren't just the home and the kids but as a primary caregiver so to speak there's me for the for our two boys and um they're seven and five so one's at school and one's about to start school this year so for the last few years it's really been not just to drop the kids at school and go pick them up it's like i've got kids at home all the time yeah so it's been a, a balance of that and it's been as someone who really enjoys people watching and social sciences it's been a fascinating experience to watch how I've dealt and our society deals with that script being flipped. Yeah. Of it's not mum at home, it's it's dad at home. And yeah. just simple things like, you know, our, young, our eldest son was going to kinder. So I'm out researching kinders. So I'm going to the open days at kindergarten. So I would walk in and I'd have this experience where the kindergarten teacher would ask me why I was there. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm here researching kinders for my son. She's like, oh, okay, is your wife here? Well, no, she's at work. And they, they just look confused. Just going, yeah, yeah. Can you explain why you're here without the mother of the child? And she, I assume she has questions. I'm like, no, I have questions. I want to know about your curriculum. I want to yeah. talk to me, show me about your lesson plans. I want to, what are the facilities like? Tell me about them. Just, it was really interesting to, that some people just really struggled to understand why I was doing what I was doing. Mm. Um, and I often, often tell this story. And um, when you tell people what you do, they make a whole bunch of assumptions about who you are. And it's mm. based on, generally about the title and how much money they assume you earn. Like I always say, if I tell someone I'm a pharmacist, you can see the wheels turn and make assumptions about how much I earn, your degree qualified, you probably talk about these kind of subjects. If I tell people I'm a forklift driver, which I've been, they treat you differently. They make a whole bunch of different assumptions about maybe a level of education and income and those kind of things. Not maliciously, just subconsciously, that's all right. But what's really interesting is when you give people a title that has no pay packet and they don't know where to fit you. Oh, I'm a stay-at-home dad. And the wheels just stop. They're like, yeah. I don't, I don't know where you fit because I don't know how to value you anymore. Because all I've used to value you is a title and a pay range. Yeah. And when you don't have that, I don't know where you fit. So I don't know whether you're incredibly important or just a bum that stays at home. Or you yeah. like, where do you fit in the, this range? I don't know where, where to allocate you and, and put you in the hierarchy anymore. Yeah. So it's been really interesting just watching society go. You're a stay-at-home dad, so. We'll, what else do you do as if that's not enough? Now, I happen to yeah. do other things, but that's been an interesting journey. Um, and just to appreciate, you know, the, the life of a, a stay-at-home parent. You know, my wife gets home from work and I'm like, the kids are mad, they're your kids, you deal with them, I'm out of here, that's it. You know, yeah. versus going, I've had that experience where I come home from work and I'm exhausted and you're like, oh, I'll get home and now the kids are a disaster and I've got to deal with that as well. Like, it's just yeah. been interesting to be, really experience both sides of that and understand that. And that's still a journey both my wife and I are still trying to get right, of getting that balance of, you know, how we have that roles and interchange and interplay and fit the kids and still have our relationship and the relationship with the kids and our work life and all those things. And it really is a, a 
dynamic that requires regular attention and you know regular maintenance and regular work and commitment yeah uh, and we're we're still doing that <laughs> well, we, we well what um like i've just read a book called equal partners actually so mm. um, and it t- talks about exactly what you just mentioned um they call it the cognitive load how you mm. how the man um actually the man normally doesn't do the the research and mm. and that kind of stuff but you you did the research for the kindergarten and the reaction you got for that yeah um <laughs> What would your wife? What do you reckon the, your wife would score you as a uh, as how you as an equal partner at home it, when she comes home? Is 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 the home ready for the hard work hard working wife I to come do, home to? I reckon I do okay. You know, I tell you, it's um it's a thing of going. There's there's the physical aspect of going. You know, I'm really proud of the fact that as a family we sit down to a home cooked meal, no devices, no TV, seven nights a week. Like, oh, yeah. Um, where the boys have a cooked breakfast most mornings if they want it. Otherwise, you know, they're having their rice bubbles or whatever. Um, but I like the fact that my wife gets home, the house is in a semi-reasonable state, and <laughs> we, we sit down at home cook meal every night, and we sit down and we talk about our day and those kind of things, and we read to our boys every single night and those kind of things. So I think there's a lot of things that we get right. Um, some of the things that we maybe don't get right is really that emotional balance of what happens when I'm exhausted and you're exhausted and the kids are being just normal kids, which means they're being hard work, yeah. and how we we manage the ebb and flow of that. And I, I think the key learning for us thus far has been that it really is an ebb and flow. Like yeah. there's not a hard and fast rule. It's going to be up some days and down some days, and some days I'm not going to be great, and some days you're not going to be be great and we're just going to have to go hey we've, we've got to give each other a little bit of room here because we're humans and we're doing the yeah. best we can and some days it's not great and some days yeah. it's really good and we learn and we move on so i think that's been you accept that it's a juggling act and that okay. you need to kind of ride the waves and no one's at fault you just had a good day or a bad day and let's let's adjust and reconvene and, and kick off again tomorrow and go it's a really um, honest way and a natural way of talking about it paul um, i hadn't intended to go here but uh what, what, Go I anywhere you mind, like. what, what, what I wouldn't mind if um if you would ask your wife tonight um yep. to to give you a score about how how you're yep. going at as a, as a stay at home dad and and, and see what I get being an being an equal partner and we'll put that on the we'll put that on the show notes. I'll ask <laughs> on a scale of between eight and ten. What would you give me as a score? <laughs> we'll go. One and ten. We'll go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, good on you. Um, so I'm conscious of a little bit. I, oh, there's so many little rabbit warrens we can go down there. But so you've just talked about um, you've had the the gym and the exporting experience. Um, you're talking about your present life, that you're a um, stay-at-home dad with your wife being the, the, the principal of the local, one of the local schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in between all that, we know that there's somehow you, you went on this journey to become uh, an Arctic, what's the, what's the word? An ultra Arctic racer over okay. 583 kilometres. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so, one of the reasons you know that I particularly wanted you on this show, which is about empowering others, is um, you are living what most would say, by your description, is is the successful life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, with the big pharmacies, the mega dollars, the mega reputation, uh, and the the assessment of value by others that that you had made it, mm-hmm. but in your own head you hadn't made it. Um, and what 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 I like about your story and why I've asked you on the show is. To empower others that it's okay to change direction mm-hmm. um, and, and seek a different version of success for yourself and your family. So let's let's go there now. Um, 
how how does this story happen now? How you know, did where, you get there? Yeah. <laughs> how how did you go? Like you've given us some descriptors about you went on experiences and you've you've done all these higher peaks in different countries. How do you end up being um, uh, an ultra marathoner in the Arctic? How, and how did you get there? And and it's a very what's, valid what's, question, what's, Alan. What's, what's the journey? <laughs> it's a very valid question. So here's how it goes. I'll, I'll explain the journey, and then we can we can pull out the lessons if need be as we go. I'd been doing higher and higher mountain peaks, and I reached a point where like I was I was climbing big stuff, and and Everest had come up as going. I think you should go and do that. And talking to some people who had done that previously in the mountaineering community. Um, they talk about Denali, which is the highest peak on the North American continent, which is in Alaska. And in the mountaineering community, some people go, if you want to climb Everest, you really should go climb Denali first as training. And some people also go, if you want to climb Denali, you should go do Everest first as training. Like it's that kind of difficulty. Okay, so yeah. Denali doesn't have the height, but it has the difficulty. There's no Sherpas. There's no oxygen. It's heavy loads. You're hauling heavy loads. It's a very complex mountain weather-wise. It gets very difficult. It's very nasty, and it's mm. it's a very different experience. So I went and tr- to do Denali with a view to preparing to go and do Everest. And I went and did. I went to Denali. Got three quarters of the way. I've got to high camp and had to turn tail and come back down. I, I at the time I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what was wrong. Only that I was not performing. Mm. And when you're climbing in these kind of expeditions, you're on a mountaineering team, so you're literally tied together. You wrote teams of three or four. Yeah. Um, and when you get to high camp, you're going from high camp to the summit. It's a we all go or no one goes. So it's a case of going, if one of us can't make it, none of us make it. And I was at high camp and the, the lead guide pulled me aside and said, look, we need to have the hard chat. Like you're not really performing at the level we need you to be. So I need to know whether you can do this because if you can't, well, none of us are going. Yeah. So can, you've got to go. But if you get halfway and you have to turn back, we all turn back. So yeah. you need to make that call. And I reflected, she said, take the night, have a snooze, tell me in the morning. And I got up in the morning and said, I'm not performing and I know that. And I can't be responsible for the performance of the other guys based on what I can or can't do. So I'll, I'll bow out. So I came back down um, and I got back to Anchorage a few days later and had a, ended up in, in a hotel really sick for three or four days with a, a chest infection. So I discovered the reason for the poor performance. I was ill. Yeah. Um, but that was kind of the case. I went back and did Denali the next year, and I had a successful trip. I summited. It was a great trip for me. But at one point, the um, Denali did what it does, which is claim lives. Um, the year that I summited Denali, Denali, the Denali range system claimed more lives than Everest did. It was just a tough year. And I found myself on the sat phone ringing my, my wife going, um, you haven't heard from me for a while, but you're going to see some stuff on the internet. Now, we're alive. We're okay. Mm. Others aren't, but, but we're all right. And he came back and reflected on that and went, well, how far do you push the envelope at this point? Because climbing is a very selfish sport. Like, it's yeah. a, it really is. I'm there for me and me only. Yeah. And it's okay when you're a single guy. You know, the risk-reward profile is, is vastly different. But then when you get married, then you're going to have kids, the risk-reward profile changes. You're playing with chips that aren't yours anymore. So I came back from that and, and really reflected and went, I don't need to do Everest because I'll be doing it for the wrong reasons. Mm. And I don't need to take that level of risk at this stage in my life. Yeah. So I hung up my mountaineering boots. But the issue is you're still you. You yeah. still have needs and dreams and aspirations and, and outlets that are about you and about no one else. They're still part of you. So how do I fill that void? Well, I, mean, I need to stay fit. I want to keep doing things. So I got back into just trail running. Let's stay fit. Mm. I'll get back to running. 
And again, went through that iteration of going through the doors. Did a half marathon, felt good. Did a marathon, hey, that was cool. Did an ultra marathon, which is kind of 50Ks or longer. Mm. And then just, what's 100Ks like? And then just started to iterate from there. And then one day I came across an advert for that particular race in the Arctic Circle, the 6633. And when I looked at it, like, it ticked all the boxes. Like, it was ridiculous. Like, it was 583 Mm. kilometres. It's inside the Arctic Circle, unsupported single stage. So they literally put you on the start line, point you north and say, go. Mm. And it's you and whatever you brought with you to survive and get to the finish line. And it was in a part of the world that I'd never been to. By that point, I'd been to Antarctica. I'd been on all seven continents, but I'd never been inside the Arctic Circle. Mm. It's regularly listed in the top five hardest races in the world. So my ego liked it. There's zero prize money and no one's ever heard of it. So I felt that I was also doing it for the right reasons. No one cares. No one's ever going to know. You're not going to get famous. Do you want to go there and really have that experience? Yeah, I want to go there and have that experience. And I don't care if no one knows that I ever did it. So I did. I trained. I did all the right things. On paper, I'm the prime candidate. Lots of cold weather experience. I could drag heavy loads. I know how to operate in mine. I spent weeks and months in minus 40. I know what to do, all that kind of stuff. And I trained and prepared really well. And then I went there and the experience delivered to me was entirely different to what I expected. Mm. I literally got my bum handed to me on a plate. Um, It was orders of magnitude more difficult mentally and psychologically and physically than I expected. Um, And I made it halfway. Uh, There were 25 people on the start line that year. That was 2017. Uh, And by the halfway mark, there was nine left. Um, and I pulled the pin at the halfway mark. I was mm. absolutely destroyed. I was starving. I was hallucinating. I was absolutely frozen. My body had packed it in. Like there was just, and I still had like 300 kilometers to go. There was no way I was making it to the finish line. Do you want to, um, I mean, I'm, I'm conscious uh, one of the carrots of this interview is for people to read your book. Yep. <laughs> uh, so we don't want to give away too much of the book. But one of the hallucinating stories, and I think it's <laughs> in that first attempt, um, just uh, left me. How did he survive? Like, um, do you want? I, I think it's you. 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 Uh, you describe it. You're. You're. You're, fall, you're walking around in a circle, falling over, and oh. uh, do you want to just say what if you can remember it? Or it's really interesting. There are there, to give people kind of a, a a context on how it works. You're racing 24 hours a day. The clock runs, so you can sleep whenever you want to sleep. Like It's not like you're not allowed to sleep. But if you sleep, you're not moving. And if you're not moving, you're not making progress, and the, the clock's still running. Um, and when you look at the numbers, you're like 583 kilometres. You've got a little over a week to do it. And like if you do the numbers roughly, it's like four kilometres an hour. And people are like, that's not hard. Like That's slower than walking. Well, yes, it's four kilometres an hour, but that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week for yeah. more than a week and you're dragging a sled and the sled weighs probably 25 kilos and you're in the snow and it's minus 40 and it's blowing a gale so now it's a little bit more complex yeah. so if you're not fast enough you can't afford to sleep so i was sleeping very little because i was too slow so if you go the first night without sleep and you'll hear things but you know they're not real like i would hear a guy behind me with a radio playing the cricket scores but I know there's no one there. Yeah. Then the next night you see things, but you, you're still cognizant enough to know they're not real. Like there's not hands coming out of the road to grab me and there's not things flying out of the sky. Yeah. But you get to the third night without sleep, it's all real. It doesn't matter what how fantastic it is. To you, it's real. And I was walking along a road at one point and I thought the road flipped up vertically in front of me. Like I literally staggered to a stop and went, 
I'm in a hallway. Why am I facing this wall? <laughs> like, and I'm in the middle of the Arctic. And I literally stood there, and I still don't know how long I stood there for, trying to figure out why I was standing facing a wall and how what I would do. And I eventually just mentally went, well, if I push the wall down, maybe it'll fall down. And I pushed it in my mind. And it disappeared and the road reappeared. I went, oh, great. And I just kept, <laughs> like, just ridiculous things happen to you. And and in the second, my second attempt at the race where I was out there for a full eight days, like, it just, it just got fantastic. It just got absolutely, like, I still have memories of things that I know are false, if that makes sense. Like, I still have, I can remember parts of the race and what the environment looked to me at the time. But I know that that's a false memory. I know that it didn't look like that. Like, I know yeah. that was wrong. Um, uh, part of me would love to go back as support crew just to go back and see some of the terrain because I just don't have an accurate recollection of what wow. it really looked like other than seeing the photos that I took going, I thought I was in a forest. And then you take you look at the photo of that same moment and you're on a white billiard table as far as you can see. You know, it's really... Mentally, it's a very, very weird experience to to process and go through. <laughs> to go through. So, so we'll leave um, we'll leave the the absolute descriptors of the first and second attempts of mm. of um, of that six six three six feet ultra marathon in the Arctic Circle. But do you just want to go there? What did you have to do? Like you you learnt after the first one, it wasn't successful, um, mm. and, and you were pretty. You're a pretty intense researcher mm -hmm. in how mm -hmm. to make it work. Um, Still a nerd. <laughs> so what did you do the second time? Because it sounds more mental than physical um, to, to get there. And and, and probably that, the overwhelming descriptor that I find as a normal guy that, that wouldn't go near that 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 kind of temperature, <laughs> normal person. Um, yep. How do you prepare your body for, that. Uh, for those temperatures? So on your own. Let's, let's divide that into two parts. Uh, let's do the temperature stuff first because that's easy. Um, you can't. Um, I live in, in Warrnambool, Australia. Like I was training through the summer and it's 35 degrees and I'm trying to prepare to survive in minus 40. Um, I had a mate who owns a restaurant here and he kept saying, you say the word, mate, I'll lock you in the meat freezer for the night. I'm more than happy to leave you in there. Like I'll come get you out the next morning. I like, no, yeah. don't, don't think we should do that. Um, so you rely on two things. One is I had experience. I had prior experience in, in really cold. Like I spent a season in the Antarctic in a tent. Like I know what that is like and how to operate. And then you have really good systems. You need to understand how you operate. So I use the example of shoelaces quite often going, yeah, if your that. shoe is on, if your shoelace is untied day to day, it's probably not a, an emotional crisis for you. But in the Arctic, if your shoelace is untied, you need to stop. So now you're getting cold. You need to tie it back up. That requires dexterity. You can't have dexterity unless you take your gloves off. So now you're stopped, you're cold, and your fingers are freezing while you try and tie your shoelace up. And if you get it wrong once or twice because your fingers are getting cold, now we have a problem. So you would eliminate risk. I took all the shoelaces out of my shoes and just put quick drawers on them. So you could just literally just, with a big mitt, you could grab it and just push it and your shoe's tied again. So eliminate risk points or fail points. Have systems. Like I trained in my lounge room so that I could get my bivy bag out, sleeping bag out, get my boots off with gloves on and be in the bag in under 90 seconds because that's what you have to do. So that when it is minus 30 or minus 40 or worse and it's blowing a gale, your body will revert to the system. Get it out, flatten it, pin it, boots off, get it done, and you do it quickly and efficiently. So it's going to hurt. Like it's still going to be cold and it's still going to hurt. But you can't change that. So accept that 
and then manage all the other things that you can. Um, so we did that. And then the mental toolkit was really about, I came away from my first attempt and went, okay, you failed. What do you have? Well, I have a bruised ego, but I also have knowledge and experience because I learned all the things I did wrong and I got to watch all the people who were successful and what they did right. And the overwhelming learning for me about the people who survived and finished the race was that they weren't great athletes. They were just really disciplined. They just made really high-quality decisions and executed those decisions regardless of environment or how they felt. They weren't superhumans. They just really disciplined. And I went, went away going, that's what I need to do. I need to build a toolkit that allows me to execute high-quality decisions whether I feel like it or not and hold that line for as long as it takes to get the job done. So I came back going, I don't need to be able to run a X minute marathon to do this. I just need to be able to be really fit in a really broad general sense, dragging tires, dragging my sleds, be really thoughtful about my kit, what I would take, have really good systems, and then really spend time thinking and reading and, and understanding how to be disciplined and make great decisions. And some of that is getting up at 3.30 or 4 o'clock to go do your training because it serves multiple purposes. You got your training in before the kids were up. I'd get home before the kids got up. But you had the discipline to get up early and do the work, even though you never feel like it, if you're yeah, honest. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. you get up and you do the work. So it really was about having that mindset and then going back into the race, taking those tools and executing, and that was the difference. So do you want to, um, like, it's it's when I hear um, some of the other people I've interviewed, they do the ultra marathons that are 100 kilometres. Yep. So just the the distances are incredible, but you're talking about 583 kilometres in in insane conditions. What kind of kilometres were you doing each day and each week, and how did you incrementally kind of increase to know that well I'm I'm good enough? To, yeah, it's to interesting because it. if you do a marathon, if you're training for a marathon, so you're training for a 42k race, your longest run before the marathon might be 30 kilometres or low 30s. When I went back to the 6633 the second time, they changed the course. It was 614 kilometres from start to finish. So that's 383 miles in the old language. But you can't do a practice run that's 500Ks. Like, this, that doesn't work. Yeah. So for me, I did a lot fewer kilometres than people would think. Um, I might have been running – base, I might have been doing 60, 70, 80 kilometres a week, and then a big week you might do 100 to 120. But it wasn't – like, it's not about – the actual numbers. It's about the quality of the work you're doing. Like you can run all week, or you could do 200Ks a week if you wanted to, but if you never subjected your body to dragging a tyre or a heavy sled, you're not doing the right kilometres. Yeah. So it might be a case of going, um, for example, I've actually got an expedition coming up in, in March in Sweden, which is similar. I'm dragging a sled again. So last week I did 90Ks of training, but I spent 60 kilometres of those dragging something heavy. So it's not about the volume, it's about what what were you doing? What was the purpose of the kilometres you're doing? Don't just log kilometres to log kilometres. Make every kilometre have a purpose and be be worthwhile. So that was really much more of a focus. We might just, because um, I think the book, and the idea, I can't tell um, uh, looking at you on the on the screen, and, I, and I've seen some of your promo stuff, you look like this huge guy because you've, you, you've got this aura about you. Um, uh, but I know you are tiny. I'm so, not. Uh, <laughs> so how um, how tall are you, and how much do you weigh? Uh, I oh God, I'm 168 centimeters, and um, 
I, my race weight's probably around between 68 and 72 kilos. No, bugger all, bugger all. Bugger all. <laughs> With a background, like, I mean, look, that's just my size. But as a mountaineering, when you're doing high-altitude mountaineering, you want maximum output in minimum size like you don't want to be the 100 kilo guy you want to be the small unit with a massive engine so i spent a long time i mean i am the size that i am like that's just who i am but i spent a lot of time going okay how much engine can i pack into this and i've got i joke that i've got skinny little chicken stick legs how much work can i get out of those things and really focus on doing that so i've i've probably got the right body to a degree to do some of these these things like I've, i'm the right shape and size and look my body weight to be honest has not changed more than one or two kilos in 20 years now since i've since i kind of got out of pharmacy and got into doing all the things i do i've, I've found an equilibrium and i sit around that point i don't weigh myself very often like you know once or twice a year like i don't trouble myself i look at work capacity what yeah. do i need to do to, be able to get the job done am i able to do that yeah cool okay and then away we go and these big races like you have to accept you're going to decimate your system anyway like um in that second attempt of the the arctic ultra i ate over six thousand calories a day and still dropped 10 kilos in seven days even though i was eating just all the food all the time so you have to accept that your body's going to go through some things when you're subjected to those kind of things that's so huge you prepare the best you can. those stats like six thousand calories a day because um the average is about two thousand yeah. calories a day just to maintain weight so yeah. and you lost 10 kilos in seven days just what i'm i'm not going to bore everyone too much about it, but i am interested um you're doing 60 to 70 kilometers a week um and, Plus some strength you know, work and his yeah. ancillary work, yep. Yeah. So what, and you said, you know, at least 70, 60 to 70% of that work is carrying a heavy sled. How much does the sled weigh and what's on the sled? Well, I worked, when I when I first did the trip, I, I kind of went, okay, I'll, I'll carry things and that'll be it. And I just trained with the weight that I expected. And when I trained the second time, I went, okay, you need to be much smarter about this. So I figured out the pace that I wanted to hold and I figured out how much my sled would weigh. And then whenever I trained, I made sure that my sled weighed at least double than what my expected weight would be. And I would hold a pace that would be at least 30% faster than the fastest pace I wanted to hold. And the theory of that was if I turned up on race day and something went wrong and I had to carry a couple of extra litres of fluid or an extra piece of kit or whatever it was, and my sled was heavier than I'd planned, it was no factor. I knew I could double the weight of my sled and still be fine. And I knew that I could hold a pace if I was 30% slower than what I did in training, I was still at the goal pace that I wanted in the first place. So I, I tried to build that capacity in there so that when I turned up at the race day, I didn't care how heavy this lead was because it didn't mm. matter. I was, I was, I had lots of capacity. So, and I, I ended up having a sled of exactly the weight I wanted, but if it wasn't, it didn't matter. I didn't have to worry about that and, you know, expend mental energy worrying about that. And when I got into my pace, I settled into my pace knowing that I could be 30% slower than I was in training and still be completely on track about where I want to be. And it just takes that mental anguish out. So now the worrying isn't something I have to do. So I can forget that and I can focus on just executing the race strategy, making good choices, dealing with things when they go wrong. Because they go wrong. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. There is going to be disaster along the way, but now I've got, it's kind of the mental bandwidth to deal with it because I'm not worried about other things that I don't need to be worrying about. You're um you're incredible. Like as soon as I read your book, I knew I gotta gotta I gotta <laughs> try and get this guy on the show because the way you think is um so 
got to drag it's this guy on. No, it's probably simple. It's a simple way of thinking, but it's 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 not it's not normal. So, like some of the things you've said already today, that the people that succeeded in the first race, they weren't exceptional athletes, but they made no. exceptional uh, decisions. Mm. Though, though they made very sensible, continuous decisions, and then. Mm. You've kind of given a summary of, um, you know, someone like Michael Jordan or someone like that. The the <laughs> way the way the way you practice. If I practice hard, game day's easy kind of thing. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And, and yeah, um, like there's a book called Relentless about the coach that coached Michael Jordan and people at that level, and he he mm. he, he, he subjects them to ins, insane levels of training and and my and mind stuff, um, mm. which you've just reiterated. You 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 carried double the weight. Yep. Uh, you you worked at a pace thirty percent higher than you what you needed to. So it didn't matter what happened on game day. Um, mm. and, and your story kind of reiterates that without without you know, without um, giving a spoiler about yeah, what the books books like. Um, so I should put some context around it too to highlight yeah, for people good, that good. whilst I was training, I'm still a stay at home dad. Like I still have kids. My wife is still working. So I don't want people to think, well, he's a professional athlete and he's home doing this all day. I, I didn't have a coach. Um, I, um, Sorry, I take that back. I did work with someone around things like breath work um, and really understanding physiology and how to regulate myself in terms of um, being able to upregulate and downregulate and those kind of things that get into a deep rabbit hole. Um, but I would do a lot of my training early in the morning, not because I was trying to be, you know, elite and posted on the socials that I was up at 4.30, but I did it because I needed to be home before the kids got up. Because yes. when the kids get up, my wife's got to go to work. So the kids need breakfast and this, that, and the other and those kind of things. And I would train at night after they went to bed. So, you know, dinner, kids into bed, read the books, talk to my wife for a while so we can actually see each other. And then I'd go train and yeah. head out into the, the, the dark yonder. And it, it served that multi, multiple purpose of, it was impinging on my hours, not their hours, but it was good mental training. So I was able to do that. So I probably spent less hours training than people think I did. I was still juggling the realities of being a dad and, you know, having other responsibilities and those kind of things. But what I really focused on was making sure that the time I did put in served a purpose. Don't just do the training for training's sake. Like I don't have a lot of spare time. So when I am working, it has to be really purposeful. So make it work um, and go from there. Thanks for sharing that because uh, one of the thoughts I did have myself was, well, mm. you know, the story is good, yes. but how, how often is the family without Paul altogether? So yes. it, sound, yes. it sounds like they're only without Paul when he's actually on race, in the race. There are some sacrifices, like, and I'm cognizant of that too. Like there's a, there's a host of people behind the man doing the race. Like when I am racing, yes, my wife's got kids and you know, my, both our families pitch in to help because of, you know, people are supporting all the other things to allow you to go and do this. And they're making sacrifices while it's still training as well. Like, yeah, I, I did the right thing and tried to put it in my hours, not their hours. But it still meant that a lot of mornings your wife wakes up and you're not there and yeah. goes to bed and you're not home. So you're still, from a relationship point of view, you're still not present to a certain degree. So yeah. there still is a cost that's borne by other people. Yeah. And I think it's important to respect that. And it also helps when you're out there racing. I think part of the, and I don't use the word motivation because I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of saying, you know, motivation comes and goes. You have to be disciplined. But part of that mindset was really about you're not the only one who sacrificed to be here. Other people have too. So mm. as you progress and make those decisions, like it's easier to slacken off and not make the, the, the disciplined choice. 
but that's not only disrespecting your effort, it's disrespecting their effort as well because they're sacrificing as well. So to pay respect to them and yourself, you owe it to everybody to make smart decisions and mm. be disciplined and execute your race plan and not waste this opportunity. So I think that's it's, – it's a big mindset. It's a big kind of picture to build, but these are the little aspects that kind of make the whole picture, if that helps. So that's interesting because um, you've talked about the first race, the people that successful made a series of disciplined decisions, um, mm. uh, and now you're talking about – you're honouring all the people that are supporting you when you go away on these ultra treks and ultra races that mm. you have to continue to make disciplined decisions. But sometimes, like you've hinted at it, we're human. Yeah, uh, you don't want it. <laughs> so, um, so where does it come from, for, you know, for the listeners, where does it come from that you continue to make disciplined decisions when some moments of those tracks i just want to throw this is this like yeah. my daughter my, i remember my daughter saying something when her baby <laughs> her baby was on the way this is rubbish you know just that <laughs> so you must be on you you must be on those races saying this is rubbish <laughs> um how do, how does how do you keep going when it's rubbish because there must you be do, some I, rubbish moments two things i think there's particularly with these really really big races i almost divide myself in two and there's part of me doing the race and there's part of me watching me do the race, if that makes sense. There's mm. that part of that scientist part of my brain that takes a step back and can kind of uh, see the experience that I'm having and comment on it. So during the, the Arctic races, when things got really ridiculous, like when you really, you know, I remember a voice in my head that was me going, you're really falling apart here. Like you really, I think I think you need to get that thought out of your head. You need to do this and do that because you're really not. Hang on, what are you doing? You know. Mm. And when you run these races, once you get a few of these hard things under your belt, and you don't have to run a hundred kilometers, but once you've done a few hard things, you start to understand that there'll be an emotional journey to it. Like I did a hundred k race a few months ago, and I'm standing at the start line, and you remind yourself that at some point you're going to want to quit so badly with every fiber of your being, you're going to hate the trees, the ground, yourself, the clouds, anything within a mile radius, you're going to swear, you're going to want to quit. But what you need to understand is that that will pass. So when you get to that point, and I did, I got to like the 70-kilometer point where this is just stupid, like, I hate this. <laughs> but then part of you goes, hey, remember when we talked about the fact that you would find this point? Well, here it is. We're yeah. at that point, and it will pass. So have your little tantrum, swear at the trees, and then can we get on, please? And so you go through that process and then you keep moving forward. So it's about maybe having a, that understanding that it's okay to have these feelings, but it's not okay to let them control you. Have the feelings, express them, get them out, and now let's move on because we, you know, we're here to get the job done, so we do that. And part of that skill set comes from doing hard things. Um, I wrote a while ago about what do you think the long-term implications are of doing something hard every day and overcoming it with thoughtful practice and hard work. What do you think your conditioning is? Well, you're training yourself to understand that you can do hard things and that there's a journey in doing the hard things and that they'll be up and down, but you can manage that and still get the hard thing done. So part of me is that when I know that through all of these races, there will be a time when I desperately want to throw the towel in and just, I'm done. 
but that's part of the process and it's why I go and do these things to get all the way down to the bottom of the well mm. and then see what's there. I mean, for me, particularly a race of that magnitude, that's one of the few, and mountaineering similar, it's one of the few ways I've found I can strip away everything, dig all the way to the bottom of the well in terms of my physical capacity and mental capacity and emotional capacity and then actually see what's there. And that has been a fascinating journey for me as a personal journey, just to really strip away everything and see what are you capable of? What, what can I actually do? How do I handle it when I'm just absolutely and utterly destroyed? What, what, what can I do? What's there? Who, who's in my head and what are they saying? And, and what's that experience like? Uh, and that process, I think, is what keeps me going back to go out there and disconnect and decompress and see what's there. I often say when you go on a mountain, the mountain doesn't care what's on your business card. Doesn't care yeah. how much you earn, yeah. doesn't care anything. It, it doesn't even register that you exist. Yeah. So you just go there for you to have that experience in that place and and discover yourself versus, you know, I want to stand up there and plant a flag and post it on Instagram or whatever. Yeah. You're a very interesting guy, mate. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Uh, I, I so, so, I, I wonder so why people wonderful. want to hear No, no, no. Um, and I love, um, like, when I read... I heard about you through um, Kelly Irving's The Expert Author Academy, um, and yes. you self-published your own, this wonderful book called Lost and Found, Why We Need Adventure. With Kelly's uh, help. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, totally. Uh, we, we, we're all in debt to tell it, Kelly Irving's um, business model and, and her skills. I interview her shortly in February, actually, on, on the program, because awesome. she empowers so many of us to do th mm. things outside our comfort zone. Um but I love, what I love about, until I heard your name mentioned by Kelly, exactly what you said. You were doing this race that no one had ever heard of, mm -hmm. no one knew about, until you wrote your book. <laughs> there's no <laughs> so, money in it. Yeah, yeah, there's no pay in it. So um, so let's go there. I'll, I'm, I'm conscious of winding up. What did you learn about yourself in writing Lost and Found? I'm going to go back one step and put some context about you commenting about the race and no one knowing about it. I have... Um, I have two heuristics, so two kind of gateposts that when I'm looking at mountaineering expeditions or races, two things that have to get ticked before I can go and do it. And the first is when you have an idea for something as extreme as that kind of race or climbing an enormous mountain, you have the idea, you must sit on the idea for 30 days and not talk to anyone about it. And at the end of the 30 days, I reflect, how much did I think about it? And if you didn't think about it a lot, it's not that important to you. If you thought about it every day, okay, it's important. It's going to be worth the time and the sacrifice and the money and the effort, et cetera, et cetera. And the second gate is, okay, if you got through that, if you could do it, but you could never tell anyone about it uh, and no one would ever know, yeah. do you still want to do it? And if the answer is yes, then you're doing it for the right reasons and, and away we go. Um, and I mentioned I've been – I've. Uh, had the opportunity on Everest expedition three times now and three times I've hit that second question and I've failed at it are you doing it because you want to do it or are you doing it because there's a version of you that wants to do it so you can tell other people you did it and it's always been the second version oh, that's the wrong so reason refreshing. to go that's so, so I'm like I can't I can't do it because I'm doing it for the wrong reasons and you're taking risk and people are making sacrifices and you're doing it for the wrong reasons. so I, I, I dare say I'll probably never do it and that's fine um so sorry, I just wanted to go back and, and clarify that's that. That's great. Point. I love it. Never tell anyone about it because that's our world now is I just had smashed avocado for breakfast. Yep. And a picture yes. of it. Oh, right it's yeah. just, oh. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> what was your question? Now I've forgotten what uh, you were what, what, did, what did you learn about yourself writing Lost and Found? 
writing the book was part therapy. Like I didn't write the book because I thought I was going to end up on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> I wrote it because it was therapy. I had this journey and people kept asking me about it. And I wanted to write it for myself and my kids to kind of have the journey written down and, and understand what I went through and what the experience is like. like. It's a great story, just I like adventure stories. Mm. But there was so much that went into getting to the start line and then what did it take to get to the finish line and what did I learn along the way? And I really wanted to just, in some ways, understand that myself. So for me, it was part, I want to write a book. And part of it was I really want to decompress and unpack everything that happened and what I learned because I don't really, I'm not really sure what I've learned yet. I haven't refined what I learned yet. And the process of writing allowed me to unpack that and really put it in a language that I understood and then really kind of refine the picture of what I thought the tools actually were and then go from there. Um, I saw a post, a great post the other day of people saying, people always say after the fact what the tools were and their reasons for success but rarely do you see people talk about it before the fact, oh, these are the tools I'll use and why I think I'll be successful in doing this thing. Like it's easy to have that survivor bias of I look back and oh, I was successful and I did these things before it. That must have been why I was successful. And that's not always the case. So it was just an interesting way for me to unpack a race that was a failure and a race that was a success and see what the differences were and then understand where the tools came from and the learnings were and what worked and what didn't. And now I'm going to test that theory again because I've taken those learnings and, you know, I'm, I'm taking my own medicine and prepping for it at the next expedition and the next race. I'd be using to see, you know, do the rules still apply or is it just a case that time and space and environment and luck and whatever combined and you had a particular outcome? Was it because of that or was it because of how you approached it? So, you know, the next iteration is, Let's apply those tools. Let's see what happens and see if we get a similar result or not. The scientist okay. says I've got to do that. So you've just covered why right. Um, what do you want? What's, say, a key goal? And this is kind of probably a Kelly Irving thing, but you're Paul Watkins. What do you hope for a reader to get out of reading Lost and Found? What's a takeaway? The takeaway for me, the, the hope that I have for most people is that they unshackle themselves from beliefs or stories that might be holding them back from doing something they want to do. And they may not even know what that thing is yet. But for a lot of us, we have a story that we tell ourselves about what we can and can't do. And we have this lens that we view the world and where we think we fit in it. And I want people to have a better lens. I want them to figure out how to write a better story about themselves and about yeah, what they yeah. could do. So that's yeah. that's really my goal is for people to go. And I often talk about this when I talk in public and say to people, like, I'm not an astronaut, I'm not an elite athlete, like I'm a short guy with bad eyesight, you know, I'm a nerd, but I did these things. So I'm not an Olympian. Like I'm like you. I'm short, glasses, normal person. So if I'm a normal person that could do these things, what can you as a similarly normal person do? And I talk about the fact that most of the skills that I've used to achieve these things are not genetic gifts. I was disciplined. That has nothing to do with my genetics. I've trained to make really good, high-quality decisions. That has nothing to do with genetics. Like, I wasn't born, you know, with Kipchoge's engine or something. I'm not Usain Bolt or whatever. It's just mm. I've trained skills and that had nothing to do with my genetics. So I am as uniquely qualified as you are or you are or you are to go out and have these adventures and do some of these things. So you don't have to climb Everest. But if there's a thing you want to do, that thing, whatever it is, you've got to allow yourself the opportunity to go out and explore that. And often the only barrier is the story you're telling yourself. 
So if we can change that story, you can go out and do it. And then I should caveat on that. I talk a lot about failure because it's not all the dream. Like I've failed on as, almost as many mountaineering expeditions as I've been successful. Like I have only marginally more summits than fails. And like the Arctic race, I have as many fails as I do successes. And I've had DNFs in races. Like I don't finish every 100K or 100 mile a race I've done. Sometimes it doesn't pan out the way you want it to. And that's part of the journey. Wonderful. I think you probably the last question I normally ask is um, what's some little gem or advice you would give a future leader because all, all of your stuff can be transpired to leadership of anything, um, yep. but, but or someone who a leader of a a team, uh, an organisation, or what you know, it's mm. a, a community, um, mm-hmm. or or someone that just wants to be dumb another ultra racer in the arctic um what's some gem you would leave them with um to to end our interview here today i think as a leader whether it's a leader of yourself or of other people you have to understand that you're dealing with humans that's the base level understanding these are people whether it's you as an individual or a team these are people so you've got to understand that they have feelings hopes dreams emotions stories all that but they're also a system. Like there's the biology and the chemistry of, of what makes them feel the way they are and how they're operating and those kind of things. So for me, that leadership is understanding that everything starts with the fact that you're dealing with a human being. Work from there. I always like to say that if we can learn to develop better humans, you instantly get better teams. And if you get better teams, we get better results and we go from there. So the starting point for me is always understand that they're real human beings and help them maximise being a great human being. And everything else will flow from there. So if I could take that, and you, you know, you, I'm just listening to your story today. So you're a stay-at-home dad looking <laughs> yep. after a seven-year-old and, a five. and five-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and boys, you know, nowadays in the world of, uh, I can't even remember his first name, I think it's Andrew Tate, and, you know, people, oh, you know, the, yeah. the misogynists and, 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 and all how how many women are fall, fall victim to violence of men um so i love what you just said then develop better humans better humans will develop better teams and, tre- and essentially treat people better what what, mm. what what kind of lessons do you give your boys or or is it just watching dad Oh, no, it's so complex being a parent, and I don't even claim to be any good at it. I, to be honest, I have days, I have more days where I struggle than days where I'm successful as a parent. Like, I can count on one hand the days where I go, I nailed parenting today. Yeah, Abs- yeah. Like, that's, but I can give you like 787 days where I was absolutely rubbish at it. Um, I think there's two aspects. One is, is setting the examples for them. Of, of, this is how we behave. We sit down and we have a family dinner every night and we talk about our day and how we feel and those kind of things. Um, when you screw up, and I screw up all the time, having a process for go back. So a, a thing that my wife has taught me that I use with my boys a lot now is called being restorative. So great example this morning. My five-year-old blew up, absolutely blew up. I blew up. He got sent to his room. We are all having five minutes of five time. <laughs> but I went back and sat down and went, okay, it's not enough to go yell at them, center their room, and you can shut up and come out when you behave. It's a case of going okay, I need to swallow my pride, go back in and go, hey, I yelled at you for yelling at your brother and that's not okay, so I'm sorry. Mm. So now in my mind, he's seen that a grown man, it's okay to say you were sorry and you were wrong. Mm. But now I need to talk to you and go, how did you feel and why did you do that? 
what would have been a better way to go? So I was talking to him about the fact that it's okay to have big feelings. You can be angry, you can be upset, all those kind of things, but you can't let them control you. So have your feelings, but come and get me to help you so that we can fix the problem and go from there. I often say to my younger son, if you tell me, I can help. If you don't tell me, I can't help. So I'm, I'm trying to instill that concept in him so in, in the vain hope that when he's a teenager and screws up because I'm his dad and I know what I was like at that age, <laughs> he feels like he can come and talk to me. Like, I don't care how bad it is, mate, but if you don't tell me, I can't help. But if we have that dialogue, you can, I can always help or we can try, we can do something. So for me, it's be the best example you can, understand that you'll screw it up on the regular and have a process for unpacking when you screw it up <laughs> and and you know, moving forward from that point so that you don't just write it off and go, well, that was rubbish and move on. No, it was rubbish. So what are we going to do about it? Okay, I need to do this. We need to talk about that. And let's reset and, and move forward and go from there. And I'm sure we'll have that exact same conversation tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> but it's repetition. Isn't it? Look, I think oh, that's, yes. a, that's a great place to finish with it. You've, To be honest with you, Paul, you've exceeded all expectations I had of this interview. I knew you were an I'm interesting guy. I've had a ball. It's been great. <laughs> I knew you were an interesting guy, but um, some of the places you've taken us, especially in two, you know, 2023 where uh, we have to raise it's mad. Uh, good human good human beings, um, you've taken us in different directions that I never expected you to take us. So thank you. It's My been an pleasure. absolute pleasure. Um, can, can you tell us where people can buy your book? Um and how do they get in contact with you? Yes, easiest place to find me is a uh, website, so paulwatkins.com.au. Uh, I am on social media, but I spend most of my time on LinkedIn. So if you want to find me, Paul Watkins on LinkedIn, I love having conversations there. Uh, you can buy my book either through me, through my website. Uh, it's on Audible, uh, narrated by yours truly. So you get yeah. my dulcet tones and Aussie accent pounding away through my book. Um, and then you can buy it online through you know, where good books, bad books, mediocre books, where any books are sold, you can find them through your favourite retailer and, and get them from there. All right. Been a pleasure, mate. I thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, I'll just, uh, that'll be that'll be us for today, and I'll look forward to catching up with you shortly. Thank you. Oh, but thanks for the opportunity. I can honestly say that I did not want the interview to end. I will leave you with a recap of some of the best messages from Paul Watson today. He asks us to remember we are dealing with human beings who have feelings, hopes, dreams and emotion. We are a system. If you develop better human beings, starting with ourselves, we will by design have a better world. In the interview, I asked Paul to get his wife, the principal of the local school, to give him a score on how he is an equal partner at home as a stay-at-home parent. Paul assessed his own score as probably at least eight out of 10 for this review. Um, but his wife refused to score him at all, saying sometimes he fails miserably and sometimes he goes okay. A great example, we always have room to improve. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>